This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Blue Cliff Records, case 74. Before each meal, Master King Yu himself would bring the rice bucket to the monk's hall, dance and laugh loudly and say, little bodhisattvas, come and eat your rice. Techo said, although he did it like that, he was not being kind. Later, a monk asked Choke. Long ago, a monk said, little bodhisattvas, come and eat your rice. What was his meaning? Choke said, that was a sort of grace before meals. story is unusual uh, in many respects. I believe that the teacher here, this Master King Yu, uh, only mentioned this once in this case. He's otherwise a pretty obscure character. And his behavior is quite unusual because sort of overtly happy and joyful. And it doesn't conform to the usual behavior of Zen teachers being strict and severe. And there's a kind of school of thought that, uh, that you see, that's why you've never heard of them. It's the uh, strict masters who had lots of Dharma successors. King Yu offers us, I think, a good uh, counterpoint, a counterpart to that kind of stereotype of the severity of practice. But within the case itself, the two comments from later teachers said, uh, Sancho and Chokai of asking what did this behavior mean? And Sancho says, although he did it like that, he was not being kind. So other translation says not being cordial, which I don't think is very good. Why would he say he's not being kind? Well, there's an interesting analogy to another more famous koan in which a monk asks, what does Avalokitesvara 
use all those thousand eyes and hands. What we apply is, it's like a man groping for his pillow in the middle of the night. How is that a picture of the functioning of compassion, of Avalokiteshvara? Well, the idea is that it is a completely unconscious, spontaneous kind of movement. It's not directly what we think of as compassionate or helpful. It's groping in the back of your head for the pillow in the middle of the night. You sort of do it automatically and unconsciously without thinking about it. That's the point of doing it while you're asleep. You're not thinking about it. You're not having a goal in mind. You're just reacting spontaneously to the, your need of the moment. Master King Yu here is not being kind to his monks by this way of offering the rice. He's also just acting spontaneously. He's just expressing his own delight. And the other comment from Chokai, where he says this was sort of a grace before meals, and a better translation would probably be, this is his version of the meal chants before meals. He doesn't do something formal and ritualized. He just laughs and claps his hands and says, little bodhisattvas, come and get it. Right? That's his meal chant, right? A very diluted version of that same feeling. I rewrote the meal chants years ago to include the word joy. Those of you who have been around other Zen centers know that the chants of, about meals are often written in such a way to suggest the food is just being taken as a kind of medicinal necessity. We eat because we have to stay alive in order to attain the way. I stuck the word joy in there in two, two places. To enjoy our life, we take this food. Joy, we enjoy this food with everyone. Enjoyment shouldn't be a dirty word in Zen. Shouldn't be synonymous with the kinds of attachments we're supposed to uh, be here to get rid of. Enjoyment ought to be an expression of our realization. Enjoyment ought to be a natural part of our life itself.
See, I often said that what I try to teach is a kind of post-enlightenment practice. And I call it that in order to offer you an alternative, the kind of practice that is always trying to get somewhere. It's goal-oriented and instrumental. The way it's oriented or structured. Everybody comes to practice with a goal in mind, consciously or unconsciously. We call it enlightenment. Just say we're trying to relieve our own anxiety or depression or confusion, quiet our mind, find meaning in our life, aim our anger. Lots and lots of reasons people give. At one level, they're all legitimate. Obviously, that's the kind of suffering that Buddha says practice is designed to release us from. But in another sense, all these goals are in themselves a symptom of the problem. We're always trying to get from here to there. We never think that this is it. This is always the problem. So we keep striving in our practice for a solution or some state, some experience going to give us once and for all some kind of relief. And what we're trying to understand about this koan and this old master that he is just allowing himself the joy of the moment. It's a kind of delight just being able to serve rice to his students. Nothing special about the rice. Not that he's the great chef just enjoying the fact that we're alive, that we get to eat this meal together. Enjoying the fact that the Dharma gate is open and the great way lies beneath our feet, extending freely in every direction. Again, that's something I wrote years ago, tried to present an alternative. The usual admonition that you hear 
you that death is just around the corner. Don't squander your life. Stay scared. <laughs> Work hard, right? See, in a certain sense, the strategy of traditional practice is to join with your curative fantasy, to join with everyone's notion that there's something missing and something to get, to send you out on a quest for it. What is Mu? Bring me the answer. You have to, in a certain sense, invest our practice, invest the search for Mu with all the doubt and confusion and desperation and longing that we have in our lives and concentrate it into our practice a kind of transference neurosis, right? We're trying to funnel, funnel all that sense of this is not it. Being here now in this moment and facing that sense of deficiency or lack and trying to get what's missing. What is move? What is it? Like people stuck in an endless argumentative debate or negotiation, we don't know how to take yes for an answer. We don't know how to see the answer in the question itself. We don't know how to see that we've already arrived. Most enlightenment practice asks us, what do you think is going to happen the day after? Why are you going to practice the next day and the day after that and for the rest of your life? Once you find out what is move, why not just go home happy? <laughs> well, traditionally, they'll tell you, well, you've got 1,500 more to do, right? Or just keep chasing down as any last traces of this is not it, right? What then? What then? How do we think of practice? It's an expression of our life rather than an antidote to our life. What is it practice if it's not medicinal, if not curative?
Morgan always talks about the identity of practice and enlightenment. He calls this just sitting. So simple, people can't do it. It's years and years and years to arrive at something that could genuinely be called just sitting. With all our sense of goal or accomplishment, deficit or attainment, this drops away. Talks about body and mind dropping away. Drops away, we could say, is not doing it right. Not there yet. Is this it? We like to practice off that whole grid being done well or badly. Too often this practice is presented as a kind of facing of grim realities giving up our fantasies, giving up our attachments or our desires, facing life as it is. It's all about impermanence, vulnerability, pain and suffering. See, practice is not turning away that kind of pain. It's true, only in part. That's only one dimension. You should not forget the side pure enjoyment, pure delight of each breath, pure delight serving rice to your little bodhisattvas for lunch, every day. 